Welcome to the Cardio Metabolic Health Podcast, the show which helps listeners drop fat, increase muscle mass, and most importantly, prevent or even reverse lifestyle-driven diseases. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Andrew Appleton, as we dive into the root of obesity, diabetes, neurological disorders, and even many cancers. Yes, these are all preventable diseases driven by various lifestyle choices that you can do something about today. Our podcast aims to take complex health topics and turn them into easily digestible information with a practical viewpoint so you can take meaningful actions right now. So join us as we do our part to reestablish the core value of health back to our community. <laughs> we'll try we'll try that again take two so i'm sitting down with uh dr appleton and i'm actually going to have you do uh do a bit of your own intro just because i'm going to post this to instagram as well um so a lot of people who have no idea hi who you are or anything okay. about yeah. you will want to know your quote-unquote qualifications uh but we were originally going to do a broader recording on the state of healthcare in ontario and uh, the country more broadly, but with what's going on in hospitals and what people are reading in the media every day, we decided to uh, shift gears and talk a little bit more about the specific situation happening uh, in pediatric care, as well as hospitals in general with this uptick uh, in, in viruses. So uh, why don't we start with your self-introduction of who you are, your qualifications that are relevant to uh, today's podcast. Sure. Yeah. You say quote, quote unquote qualifications. Well, so it just you know. reminds me of my, <laughs> my wife taught my daughter to, uh, to retort to me. Sometimes she's like, Oh, very good doctor. And she does it with air quotes. <laughs> like, oh, very nice. Very nice. Um, yeah. So I, I'm a, a general internal medicine specialist. I practice at London Health Sciences Center, uh, in London. I'm an assistant professor on faculty at Western University. Uh, so teach at the med school, do some research stuff. Uh, most of my clinical work is is acute care. So on our uh, internal medicine teaching wards at University Hospital in London. Um, you know, been right in front front row for the the pandemic all the way along, and uh, everything that's that's happening now. You know, if you look to the news, you see that apparently healthcare is is in shambles, and I guess we'll we'll you know tease that apart a little bit here. But uh, you know, do. You, <laughs> Need to know anything else about me? Well, uh, I think <laughs> back it's worth... squat or uh, anything like that. <laughs> back squat, weak, low. I think uh, I think everyone will just assume that because you're scrawny a scrawny little doctor. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think it's worth noting that you were also a lead of one of the COVID units as well uh, throughout the pandemic. Which, as far as what qualifies you for infectious disease and managing that in a frontline system, uh, is probably worth noting. Sure. Yeah, so like, like I'm one of, one of the team leaders uh, for for one of our three main inpatient teams at, at UH, uh, and yeah, at various times I have been on the team that was specifically looking after COVID patients, uh, and actually as recently as as a month ago, we actually started a fourth team because of uh, of volume demands in the hospital to offload the other three teams because we just have way too many patients. Uh, it gets to the point where you can't provide safe. Uh, care anymore because you can't pay enough attention to that many people. Uh, plus, we also have a teaching mandate. We have residents and medical students that we need time to to do teaching. Uh, and you cannot do that when you're run off your feet with clinical demands. So quickly, can you, can you tell everyone 
as a specialist in internal medicine? What does that actually mean day to day? Uh, so I, was, I always describe internal medicine. The internal refers to your internal organ systems. So I'm non-surgical. You do not want me coming at you with a scalpel. Um, but any, any of your you know, vital organ systems, heart, lungs, kidneys, GI system, blood, etc., cetera, uh, we sort of uh, see all of that as an umbrella. So as a general internist, uh, we deal with uh, acute and chronic multi-system disease management. Okay. So everyone is familiar with, uh, with what is going on as far as how the media is portraying what's happening in hospitals. Uh, and although it's not new that hospitals are overwhelmed, and we'll talk about that a little bit, but n- not only not new in the past couple of years, but not new in the past couple of decades, uh, it might be somewhat novel, uh, the amount of viral infections that are showing up in kids that are presenting uh, problematically enough that children are ending up in eMERGE. So if you can tell me uh, generally what's happening in the hospital environment right now and then what you know about the pediatric issue specifically. Yeah, so uh, I guess just, just to frame this a little bit, so our, you know, our typical mission is to discuss cardiometabolic health. Uh, and I, I think that this conversation is absolutely relevant because everything that goes on in the healthcare system potentially has a, a direct or indirect effect on every individual's health care uh, in, in Canada and you know, in Ontario, which we know the most about here. Um, so it's important to know about that and be armed with information for if you do get sick or if you want to take more of a preventative approach, then you need to know this stuff. Um, and then my, my other preface is I'm not a pediatrician. I, I'm a physician for adults. So, you know, the, the pediatric stuff is, is not my world of expertise, but I have, you know, a reasonable understanding of, I think, what's, what's going on. But, I mean, in, in general, what's happening, it's not good. Uh, so hospitals absolutely are way over capacity pretty much across the board. Uh, so to give you an example, our internal medicine unit has been running at 110 to 120% occupancy for months. Um, that's unusual, uh, especially, you know, it was like that in the summer. That's very unusual. We usually have a bit of a, you know, a lull, you know, maybe we dip below even 100% in the summer. Um, and then as we get to this time of year, this is when we start to see the uptip, up, uptick usually into the holidays and then January, February, when, you know, w- would be our pre-COVID expected virus season. Um, so we are already way over max capacity. And what's the, the problem with that is if you've got too many people admitted to the hospital, when you come into the emergency department and you need to be looked after and you need to be admitted, there's nowhere to put you in the hospital ward and then so the emergency department itself fills up with admitted patients which means that there's nowhere to take people in from the waiting room to see them so especially if you're there for a low acuity reason in the waiting room you're going to be waiting for hours and hours and hours and we have seen that where you know london health sciences center posts on their twitter there's you know 20 hour wait in the emergency department which is you know and that that's for the lowest acuity stuff coming through but that's a major problem that's a failing of the healthcare system and then on the back end you ask well why is it so over capacity one is just demand uh, but the other is we can't offload so even the patients who have recovered from their acute illness who are in hospital but they still have needs so a lot of these patients are older they're frail 
they have mobility issues, they need home care, uh, or they need to transition to some sort of rehab setting or even a long-term care setting, but those spaces don't exist. And there's not enough personnel in home care to look after them. So they sit in hospital in acute care beds, which means that the flow through the entire system is impossible. How much of this is a staffing issue right now? Uh, I think a lot of it, um, just before I mention that, so the, the other ramification of this is surgeries. Uh, so when your hospital beds are full with medical patients, they spill over into surgical beds, which means that the surgeons can't perform their regular elective surgeries. So surgical wait lists back up. So there's, we all know there's a massive backlog of you know hip and knee arthroplasty surgeries that need to be done, for example, which just adds to the disease and disability and people suffering out there in the community. Um, from a staffing standpoint, so I mean, th there's multiple factors that go into this, but absolutely staffing is very problematic right now. Um, I can speak obviously mostly to the medicine ward, but a typical nurse to patient ratio during days would be one to four. So one nurse looking after four patients on nights, it would be one to six. Uh, right now, it's not uncommon to have one to six during the day and one to eight or even more during the night. There's a lot of uh, short notice sick calls. Uh, they can't recruit enough people. A lot of people have left or retired or moved to jobs in more of a like a, a day clinic type setting uh, so that they don't have to work you know, nights and put up with the ridiculous stress of everything that's going on, which is fair enough. Um, and that means that we're bringing in a lot of brand new, fresh nurses out of nursing school uh, into a very complex environment where they might quickly be over their head. And so all of that is, as you can imagine, not great. Sure. So what does it mean to be 110 to 120 percent uh, over capacity? Because some people might be under the impression that, you know, on a routine day and a routine year, you're at 40, 50, 60 percent capacity. Uh, but it's my understanding that most hospital emergency rooms, especially in major cities, so bigger hospitals in, in bigger cities, are always between the 80 to uh, upper 90s percent of capacity, even on a good day. Yeah. Uh, according to, to studies, um, you know, 85% occupancy is probably the sweet spot for an efficiently operating uh, hospital. Um, so you don't want to have too many empty beds because that's just a waste of, of resource and, and space. Which we really care about in this country. <laughs> yes, we very much do. Uh, and that, that was the mantra for many, many years, which you know, is part of the reason that led us to this crisis by closing beds and getting rid of staff and spaces. Right. Um, so you know, you only, a hospital has a bed map. You, know, you have so many beds allotted to, to medicine, to surgery, to psychiatry, to pediatrics, et cetera, at the emergency department. There's always some surge capacity built into that. Um, but you, know, you just, once you get enough bodies in beds, you run out of space. And so what you have to do, like how do you get to 110% capacity? Well, you either steal from another service, which we often do by putting patients in surgical beds, uh, or you start caring for patients in you know, unconventional care spaces would be the you know, PC term <laughs> to use. Like hallway that medicine. That means literally a, what used to be a supply closet. Uh, you clean that out and you put a hospital bed in it. Uh, or in the hallway, 
yeah exactly okay so that's that's how you get there i'm gonna read you i went through and looked uh tried to find as many articles as i could between uh 2000 and 2020 that had alarmist headlines about hospital capacity uh both just hospitals in general and then hospitals uh in a pediatric setting now i want to read you this one because this is the earliest one that i could find that was related to pediatrics uh and this was the globe and mail i believe published this my apologies if that's a mistake i don't have a note on here no beds at sick kids get used to it Sick Kids administrator said it was so serious the hospital might have to consider sending patients to Buffalo. The issue has been building for years and isn't likely to change without more money for beds and nurses to staff them. While the viral season of late fall and winter puts an additional burden on pediatric intensive care units at all five of the province's children's facilities, the Toronto Hospital's pediatric ICU has also seen a relentless rise in admissions over the last three years. The complexity of cases and length of time children remain in the unit has also increased. So in reading that as, you know, I, I'm sure there's certainly elements of, of truth to that. I'm, I'm certain there's a little bit of sensationalization uh, from the media to, to try and get people more attracted to, to what they're writing. But when you read something like that from 2005, how is now different than then? It's not. I, I honestly don't think it, it is any different. We have known this forever. You know, ever since I became aware of the medical world, so I, I entered medical school in 2006, uh, it's always been this way. So, uh, yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that that is from 2005 because, you know, the the governments of the day at that time were all about austerity and cutting back on space and trying to get rid of slack in the system and for a solid probably 15 to 20 years uh, it's always been about doing more with less and that's how we get there and that's when when you look at OECD statistics that compare Canada's healthcare system to other similar developed nations we are always at the bottom when it looks at you know the number of hospital beds per capita or the number of physicians per capita we are way at the bottom and that is that is an intentional design that was put in place over the last couple of decades and now covid has blown the roof off of all of this and laid bare all of the problems with the healthcare system that all pre-existed the pandemic. I actually have these statistics right here for you. Uh, and these are, are adjusted. Uh, these are, uh, you know, adjusted for age in a couple of ways. So the raw numbers might be a little bit different, but we spend, and this is the most recent data. So this is accounting for uh, 2020 and most of 2021. We spend more on healthcare uh, as part of a share of our economy, so uh, ratio of GDP, than any other OECD country. So we spend more of our money on healthcare than any other country in the OECD. We are 28th out of 30. Pu public dollars or combined? Uh, combined. Okay. Yeah. I'm surprised that the U.S. the U.S. was always ahead of us in terms of per capita spending. But uh, well, they're they're probably ahead of us in per capita spending. This is specifically uh, as a share of GDP. So okay. all the gotcha. money we gotcha. spend gotcha. within okay. our country, okay. we're spending more of that money on healthcare than any other country. We are third to last 
uh, as far as doctors uh, per thousand people. So we're 28th out of 30 uh, OECD countries. We are 23rd out of 28 in hospital beds. And we are the absolute worst uh, for specialist wait times. So we are spending more of our money as, as, you know, as far as the percentage of our total pot that we spend on healthcare. We spend more than any other country, and we are one of the worst for the amount of doctors we have for people. We are the worst for specialist wait time. We're close to the worst in the amount of hospital beds that we, uh, that we have. And uh, this isn't in what I'm looking at right now, but I read this statistic in the same report. We are the absolute worst for curative discharge as well in the entire country. So that's just to give people an idea of, uh, and, and this is probably a separate conversation to have, but just because healthcare is universal and just because we spend a lot of money on it, uh, you know, m more so federally than provincially, it doesn't mean we're getting what we're supposed to get out of that. And I'm sure there's lots of, uh, you know, inefficiencies. And it's one of the problems when government takes the lead on big complex institutions like this uh, is more money in does not have a linear output for the end user. Anyhow, um, I wanted to go back and talk a little bit about the statistics of what's going on right now because, you know, I, I read you that headline and you said, you know, this, the, I don't think much is happening right now that's different than from 2005. I think it's pretty much the same situation. Did you want to interject with something there? Yeah, no, no it's, it, that's exactly it. And it's, yeah, you know, again, there's multiple variables going on right now, but the altogether, when you've got influenza and RSV and COVID still circulating, you've got the triple virus factor, which for sure is going to increase compared to what it would have been in a typical flu RSV season before. Yeah. There's going to be more cases of stuff going on right now, which may require hospital level care. That I don't think that's surprising. We also know I don't know if you want to get into this at this point, but we we also know that you know the uh, the lockdowns and school closures and everything basically obliterated flu and RSV in the first eighteen months of of the pandemic. Well, this is something that I wanted to bring up, and I wasn't going to do it right now, but I read uh, a report by the CDC where they stated factually by the time a child is two years old they will have contracted rsv right so, so what you... what happens when that two-year period goes by and a child has not contracted rsv when for generations and generations prior 100 percent of children by that time of their life have been exposed to this common virus within our communities yeah, exactly. So you're, you're describing what's referred to as the immunity gap. And so that that's a theorized reason that may be contributing to what we're seeing now. I have heard some uh, immunologists and infectious disease specialists essentially publicly refute that claim, saying that it's that's not how the immune system works. I, I don't know. I, I don't think you can dismiss that out of hand. Um, certainly, if you're if you're not exposed to something, then your your immune system probably isn't prepared to to deal with it when you when you are exposed to it finally and then a whole group of kids being exposed all at once instead of sort of sequentially over uh, a one and a half to two year period you know maybe that does make a difference plus rsv <coughs> and flu are sort of raising their head earlier than they typically would <coughs> and that just seems to be because the seasonality trend has been thrown off 
because of COVID and, and everything that went down for the last couple of years. Um, so, you know, that's part of it. But then all of the other issues, which we just outlined about the healthcare system in general, you know, primary care is not in a good way right now. I think we actually have more orphan patients than we have had in many years. Um, if you go on, you go on Ontario Health's data, they they still quote like 2019 numbers that say 93% of Ontarians have a family doctor. Um, I've heard numbers, I don't know where they come from, that it's 90% or less now. So that means one in every 10 people out there has no primary care. So they either have to go to a walk-in clinic or they use Emerge for their healthcare needs. That's not good. That That creates problems. We have no Tylenol or Advil on the shelves. So if your child has a fever for more than a day or two and you have no way of treating that fever, what are you going to do? You're going to take them to the emergency department to try to get access to the drugs that you need to just make them feel better. We got lots of questions about that. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. We can save that, save that to the end. But there's, you know, there's multiple factors all going on at the same time. But none of these problems are new with the exception of the seasonality trend and the potential immunity gap of a group of kids, you know, including my own 15 month old who you know, had COVID, <laughs> but I have no idea if she's ever been exposed to RSV. Yeah. And she probably will be soon. <laughs> you think so. So I'm going to talk about some of the statistics. Uh, and I pulled these up yesterday. And the stats are usually, you know, five to seven days behind. So things could certainly be different as of today. But the most recent uh, statistics I could find. So right now, there's uh, 87 kids in hospital with RSV uh, and testing at uh, just over a 3% positivity rate. Uh, and in past years, uh, last year, for instance, uh, at this time, uh, we had 65 kids uh, with RSV in hospital testing uh, at a much higher positivity rate, so uh, just over 8%. I'm sure there's lots of reasons why uh, the, the positivity would be testing higher now, but a difference be of, you know, give or take 20 kids. So Yeah, the test positivity rate, just it's a numerator-denominator issue, right? Right. Uh, but not... Uh, if you were just reading media headlines, you would think, well, if last year we had 65 kids in the hospital with RSV right now, we must have 1,000 in the hospital right now, which is which is yeah. not the case, right? So, well, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up so that the absolute numbers are important to understand. Um, so there, there are probably just less than 3 million children, you know, 17 years and, and under in the province of Ontario. Just under 3 million 87 are in hospital. Okay, so th this is a, a fraction of a percentage of pediatric age kids. Now, RSV mostly affects, like you're most likely to be hospitalized if you're under two. So that's, if you if you look at just that group, there's, you know, I, I don't know exactly, maybe 750,000 in that sort of age category, something like that. Uh, again, it's a small fraction. So you think about that number of kids, how many pediatric critical care beds do we have in Ontario? 112. Like, so it doesn't take much of a swing, like a 10-point increase in occupancy. 
equates to just under a 10 percent you know increase so if you're at if you have all those beds full but then you know, there's five more kids that need care all of a sudden you go from 100 to you know, 105 percent occupancy just like that right so it's like the absolute numbers of hospital beds and icu beds for kids in the province is minuscule compared to the number in the population right and if uh if you routinely saw you know, 80 to 90% occupancy in those beds, they probably eventually get cut if uh, if those upper limits of capacity weren't, weren't being pushed all the time. So that's uh, the state of RSV, um, COVID-19. So in the past 14 days, there's no, only- just, I mean, it is a problem when, when you have all of your critical care beds full. Sure. If you've got, you know, a child who needs emergency surgery, they have comorbidities, they need a critical care bed to go to after surgery. If you have a child who is involved in a car accident and a major trauma, they're going to need an ICU bed. So when those beds are full, that creates real problems and potentially real harm for just you know the routine things that come up, unfortunately, in people's lives. So yeah, it's it's a major issue and there there is surge capacity built in and there are you know other crisis situation management plans such as moving you know 15 to 18 year olds to adult icus because many of those mature minors can be looked after basically as an adult um so all of those things are are at play yeah so state of rsv uh we just covered covid 19 so in the past two weeks there's been six children admitted to hospital uh, presenting with COVID-19. Um, and to, to give some comparison, over that same period of time, 454 adults uh, were admitted to hospital uh, with COVID-19. Uh, and that's at a 62% incidental rate across the board. So 62% of the absolute hospitalizations where uh, someone is testing positive for COVID-19, they aren't actually uh, in hospital because of COVID-19. They are just happening to test for COVID-19 positively while they are in hospital, but clearly uh, COVID-19 is not driving uh, this issue as far as... Uh, that's, that's in keeping with my experience. So on call last week, you know, we had, yeah, probably about 50-50 when, when somebody comes in and they, and they test positive. You know, some of them are there for viral respiratory-like illness, uh, but half of them are just there and, oh, they happen to swab positive. So we know that we need, you know, precautions to, to put in place for them, but it's like, okay, well, it really has no bearing on, on what's happening with them. Right. And then lastly, the other big one is uh, is influenza. So uh, from October 30th to no uh, November 5th, and this isn't uh, necessarily hospitalizations. These are just people who are testing positive for influenza wherever this is happening. Uh, so from the 30th to November 5th, uh, there were 6,332 tests given at a 14.5% positivity rate, which is 918 confirmed cases. The week before was at 603, and the week before that was 225. So significant amount of people testing positive for influenza, uh, and it looks like that scale is rising fairly rapidly, uh, the amount of people. Who yeah, we're on the uptick, positive. and it's in anything te with uh, testing positivity rate north of 5% is considered uh, an epidemic. Right. So we congratulations, everybody. <laughs> we are in a flu epidemic, which uh, wouldn't be like this is this is the problem that I have uh, with with language these days is in the past 20 years. How many times have we been in a flu epidemic like this isn't like uh, 
a one in a century problem that we're facing right now. If you think of 2018, right, uh, it was one of the worst flu seasons we've had recently. Uh, and we didn't have all of these knee-jerk reactions in social spaces, uh, in public health that we do right now. And this is why I think it's important to talk about the statistics because when you think about a flu season like uh, 2018, so just to give uh, people an idea, in 2018, 54 kids died from influenza, and that's from 19 and down. So 16 children under the age of one, 21 children from one to four, five children from five to nine, four children from 10 to 14, and eight children from 15 to 19, getting out of the uh, you know children bracket as you get closer to 19. But in 2018, I don't recall the sort of manic response that is leading public health uh, professionals in prominent positions begging for widespread mask mandates, lockdowns, restrictions that are government enforced on the general community, especially uh, people who are in positions of public health authority who say, we need mask mandates and they need to start in schools right now. If in 2018, when 54 kids died from influenza A, we didn't have this sort of reaction. I get the sense that there is this residue of the pandemic and a lot of the media hysteria that was involved in the pandemic that has now completely altered people's way of how they see the problem to where now they're asking for intervention that I think is inappropriate. And that's just my opinion on it, which is why I think it's important to talk about the statistics where What's happening in hospitals right now, like you mentioned, is not new. The capacity issues, and that's not to minimize what's happening in hospitals. It's a problem, and it's going to continue to be a problem, and it's always been a problem. I don't talk about the statistics to try and minimize that issue. The question is, what is going to be the most reasonable and the most effective intervention for, for these types of problems? And if it's never been mandatory masking or lockdowns in the past, why is it now mandatory masking and lockdowns? Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to yeah. back you in a corner. <laughs> You're trying to get me canceled. Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe you deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I do. Um, yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, so let, let's just, in our minds, remember a time before covid this is what this is what I'm trying yeah. to do yeah. with these. Statistics. Let's imagine that COVID nineteen was never a thing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. If if something like this was happening now, and there were headlines that emerges were full, hospitals were full, there weren't enough spaces to put critically ill kids. More kids than usual were getting RSV. It was hitting at the same time as flu, and it was early. I, I really don't think there would be any call whatsoever for massive public health interventions, including mandated masking and uh, lockdowns or school closures or anything of the sort. Um, and I, I think the, the groundwork that you've laid giving us the absolute numbers with the massive denominator of the 15 million people in the province and the 3 million kids um, helps to underscore that you don't need the mass hysteria and and panic driven calls for decision making and mandates um, that we seem to be seeing now. 
Yeah, especially with what we understand about the clearly negative as well as potentially and somewhat unknown negative effects of these sorts of restrictions we've we've tried to enforce in the past couple of years. We have some understanding of how problematic uh, a lot of that collateral damage actually is, but yeah, we're still trying to to hammer that same nail with it's, something uh, like this where it has nothing like if if there's only six kids who have been hospitalized with covid in 14 days at you know only 38 percent of those you know just using uh, raw numbers here 38 percent of those admissions actually being from covid 19 why are we using the same strategy even assuming they were effective strategies well, why are we and, still trying to use and them i for would this? also I would assume, I don't know, but I would assume that the kids who are being hospitalized with these viral illnesses are probably not healthy at baseline. On average, there will be the odd one who's never had any health problem who's hospitalized with a severe infection, for sure. But by and large, the risk factors, apart from being an infant, are you've already got comorbidities. These are kids who have chronic diseases. They have immunosuppression for whatever reason. They live in social deprivation situations. Like there are a lot of other factors that go on that lead to those things, none of which masking will solve. Right. Or closing schools, which will probably have an even worse effect. And we know that, not to say that people have been, I don't know if you've seen people asking to say like, we need to close down the schools or whatever. Um I, I don't know. It's just there's there's a lot of hand wringing. We know that it's really politically unpalatable to talk about these restrictions now. I I don't think the the sort of quiet moderate public uh, really cares for it very much. Um, but there is a lot of noise from certain groups that seem to be trying to call for things, and they're just just you know blown away when a recommendation instead of a mandate is is made. Yeah, and I, I I don't get it. Like I after go after living through this for the last couple of years, it, it's amazing to me that people are they're, they they want more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it it's almost no, you know, getting on a tangent a little bit. It's almost like there's certain people, uh, whether they're physicians or public health officials, where over the past few years they've gained a sense of power and authority through these means that they've never had before. And whether they know this uh, explicitly or implicitly, they don't want to let go of that authority. And if this problem is not the same problem anymore, they are not the same expert or leader or authority that perhaps they once were. And I just I don't see uh, I don't see another ex- good explanation for it. Maybe there's some, probably some sort of Freudian analysis required <laughs> in there somewhere. Sure. Um, but Elon is doing his best to destroy their platform, which is cool. Yeah, he's yeah. doing a great job. <laughs> I like I like everything he's doing there right now. I like people in those positions, especially of uh, especially of private enterprise, who don't care. Yeah, who don't care because it's not like it's not his job to care in yeah. that way, and the. The fact that he he purchased Twitter and he is the like leading troll on Twitter right now is amazing. I don't understand how you can be somebody in that position making those decisions and not have that sort of back and forth language that you're a part of not keep you up at night. But I love that it doesn't like he must sleep well enough even getting into these battles every day on the platform that you just bought. Anyhow, so is there anything else you want to 
talk about as far as the current hospital situation before we get into the questions? Well, I, I would say, you know, again, people need to be aware that, that these problems exist. And if you think that you have a health issue brewing, you need to be proactive and try to nip that in the bud now. So tap into your non-hospital resource. Don't wait for things to get so bad and out of control that you have no choice but to go to the hospital because it's it's not great. Like it, you're, you'll wait longer than you should. Uh, you'll be probably cared for in a space that's not ideal. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's just the old. We need to have people take responsibility, be proactive. Um, if you have a primary care provider, you know, get in to see them, even if it's just for a maintenance checkup. I really encourage you to do that. I know primary care is overloaded. And yeah, they don't want to hear and you you're, talking. You're married that to one, <laughs> and they're run off their feet, and it's not it's not a good time to be a family doctor right now. And I'm I'm sure that they're sick and tired of only being able to put out fires on a day to day basis and feel extremely underappreciated. But we really do have to swing this whole pendulum to what are we doing here for the future, for the next 10, 20 years? Like these crises always come up. There's always something. And we have to have plans in place for that. But we also need to have an eye to the future to go, this has been a problem, as you've highlighted, for more than 20 years. So what are we doing for the next 20 years to make sure that this doesn't happen again and to have the healthiest possible population that we can so that we're ready for when the inevitable crisis comes up. And I we, can answer that for you. The okay. answer is nothing. We are going to do nothing. <laughs> okay. We are not going to take any action. This uh, issue is going to get dramatically worse. People are not going to take any personal responsibility. The government is not going to encourage people to take uh, personal responsibility. Uh, less people are going to be interested in working in healthcare. We're not going to be able to accommodate the system that we've built with, uh, with properly staffing that system, and the whole thing is going to collapse. And then it's going to be very bad for a lot of people for a significant period of time. And the only hope is that in that collapse, something can be rebuilt that is more efficient and more effective. Yeah. And the <laughs> it's a really rosy picture. Hey, it's um, the reality of the situation. Yes, I do. I mean, at times I find myself, uh, you know, skewing towards nihilism uh, and I have to <laughs> pull myself back from careening to the edge. But, um, you know, I, just from the insider's perspective, there are a lot of really good people in healthcare who For care sure. so much, and we just want to do a good job and be able to do our jobs without all of the administrative burden and extra meetings and everything else that is not clinical work that is actually what we're trained to do. We just want to be able to do that, and if <laughs> if somehow we could, I think we could actually benefit a lot more people than we currently are. But again, all of that, it's it's organizational, it's institutional structures that are that are put into place that affect all of the professions inside of the umbrella of healthcare uh, that you know are suffering. And that's why people are burnt out and retiring or shifting to a different focus, which is more of, you know, I just want a nine to five and I'm out because I'm sick of thinking about it. You know, I spend my evenings after the kids go to bed, I'm back on doing patient stuff, thinking about, 
research, thinking about how can I do better for my patient population. Like it's a never ending cycle and I want to be able to do the good job that I was trained to do, but it's, we are facing an uphill battle. Yeah. When people ask, how do you spend more on healthcare uh, as part of your, your, you know, your total government pot than any other country and have the longest wait time for specialists, have some of the, you know, the, the third least amount of physicians, have the, the worst curative discharge rate. It's because that money goes to administrative bloating. It does not go to, uh, it does not go to the healthcare providers. It does not go to, uh, to technological updates and innovation. It does not go into improving the system as far as how care is actually delivered to the patient. It goes to nonsense. And with every year that passes, more money goes to more nonsense. And that's as much as I'm going to say on that. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit more granular than that. <laughs> it, but for sure, there, there is a there is a, a large administrative component that probably doesn't promote efficiency and probably actively grinds efficiency into the ground. Yes, precisely. <laughs> so we'll get into the questions. Some of these uh, we've already covered, so we can skip by them. But I'm still going to ask them anyways. So uh, I'm acknowledging Fine. I'm acknowledging people that that I've, I have noted these uh, these questions, but but they've already been answered. And maybe there's something else you want to you want to add to it. Uh, and just so people who submitted questions know, I've changed the nature of the question to be a direct specific expedient question. <laughs> so if it doesn't sound exactly like the question you asked, it's because it required some adjustments, uh, especially if your question was just Are you going to give their statement. ad handle, like at unicorn <laughs> I, I thought about I thought about asks. doing that, and then yeah. I thought that, would, that might be intrusive. <laughs> okay. Some people might not prefer that. Uh, so the first two questions I feel like we've already covered. Why do so many children have respiratory issues right now? Uh, and is the spike in RSV linked to a lack of viral exposure due to lockdowns, et cetera? Is there yeah. anything else? So I would that? just say, you know, pro probably partially that. <clears throat> uh, probably it's the, you know, the upended seasonality trend. It's the fact that there's three things all going on at once. Uh, I have seen one theory out there that, you know, kids who have had COVID actually may be more susceptible to RSV lung effects than they would have been previously. So there is some potentially long-lasting uh, COVID effect there. I have no idea if that's real or not, but it sounds plausible. And basically almost everyone's had COVID by this point. So maybe that's a factor. I don't know. Okay. Uh, if we didn't have a supply issue with fever medication, would there be the current problem in hospital? Uh, I think it would be. I think it would definitely reduce the number of kids that are coming into emergency departments for sure. If you could treat your kids' fever at home and they they felt better, like you've got kids, it, when you give a child their Tylenol or their ibuprofen, it is remarkable how much better they feel thirty minutes later. Yeah. So if if you could see that at home, just by this you know simple intervention i i have to assume it would reduce the number of people coming into emerge yeah especially when kids are so young they can't really communicate what's happening well all you have to go on is the basic demeanor of your child and your child's state when you give them something and then they're calm and they're happy and you know quote unquote back to normal like going around and doing their business uh it it certainly changes the way you view the situation as far as urgency yep. and, and and what's going to happen and yep. you know we'll we'll get into this a little bit more but you don't want to mess around with uh fevers when it comes to kids um how much of the hospital increase is due to hypochondria and this is you know with with what's happened i think it's a fair question <laughs> okay. with what's happened the past couple of years especially with uh you know 
kids wrongfully being painted as the big victims of COVID-19. And there's so many parents who think like if their kid's sick, they might have COVID. If their kid has COVID, their kid might be on death's door in two minutes if they don't do something about it. I think it's a valid question. How many people are now taking their kids to the hospital who otherwise wouldn't if the past two and a half years <laughs> was erased from history? Uh, yeah. Of course, there's no way for you Good to question. give a, yeah. a specific answer. I've always there. been interested in the term hypochondriac. It's so the Latin refers to below the ribs, and I don't know what that has any bearing to do on, on the fact that it's like I I'm worried about illnesses that I don't have. Anyway, that's an aside. If anything, it should be hypochondria. Because <laughs> if it's if it's all in your head <laughs> rather than in your body, or perhaps it's because. Yeah. Your important organs might have appeared to be above the ribs at that point in time when yeah. they came up with hypochondria. I think there's a certain amount of, of heightened concern about things. Um, honestly, I haven't seen it reflected in, in my practice and the patients that are coming in. Um, if anything, actually, I think COVID has, has given people a diagnosis to, to sort of glom onto. Um, so we would always get these sort of unspecified combination of, of symptoms that people would have chronically for a long time and a lot of the time you go ah you know it's probably you had a virus at some point and I don't know there's some long-lasting effects and but there's nothing really treatable here so hopefully it gets better um, but now that people have had COVID they go ah oh, it's the COVID uh, and they actually feel better about that because people like labeling things. Of course. Um, but I'm on, honestly, I don't like people don't get admitted to hospital who don't need to be admitted to hospital. So I, I they might come to emerge because of some concerns. I can't speak to the pediatric emerge world because I don't see it uh, personally. Uh, so I, I don't know. OK, next question. What are people going to the hospital for that they could not get from a family physician? And is a lack of appointment availability in primary care part of this issue? Uh, so definitely people go to eMERGE for uh, non-emergency situations. That happens all the time. You just talk to any eMERGE doc and they will tell you that. Um, but, you know, people go for sore throats and, you know, anything that could absolutely be treated in a, in a family physician's office. Um, you know, again, it's sort of what, what I, do I hear uh, when I see patients and we go who are discharging from the hospital, so from an acute care stay and go, okay, well, do you have a family doctor and can you get to, in to see them? Uh, and typical responses are, yeah, I mean, like they usually can see me in six or eight weeks. So that's not going to be helpful if somebody thinks that they have something that needs to be addressed within the next two days. Uh, it depends. So there's different family practice models out there. Uh, so group practices have to have after hours care and, and weekend coverage. Uh, and there should be an allowance for same-day appointments built into the system. Um, but, you know, to my knowledge, it's, it's episodic. It depends on the group practice. And then any family doctor who's in, a, in an independent practice, and there are fewer and fewer of them now, uh, it would be much more difficult for them to do that, to see somebody on, a, on short notice. Uh, and then, of course, you've got lots of people who don't have primary care. I uh, actually will get to this later. I'll save that. Uh, do you have any insight into why there is a medication shortage? Are you guys seeing shortages in the hospital? Uh, not that I've come across. Uh, so, so it's just retail fever medication that you're having an issue with? Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, we don't, we honestly don't prescribe a lot of um, 
a lot of ibuprofen like NSAIDs in hospital. Um, so it's probably not a huge volume demand there. Uh, we do a lot of acetaminophen for sure, but they're adults and I, I haven't heard that there's a major shortage in like just tablets of, of acetaminophen. Um, do I have any insight into what's causing it? So there was a an article yesterday because there was actually, um, what do you call it? When they do one of those like government investigation sort of things, they sit down, have a panel and talk to experts who are supposed to know what's going <laughs> on. Um, anyway, so they, they had one of those and it sort of came to light that they the government knew about this a long time ago like months and months ago there were some shortages being reported and they were actually given the option at that time of bringing in international sources of medications and apparently they turned it down and said we'll just increase uh, domestic production which obviously wasn't able to be tooled up fast enough to meet demand so yeah, I, apart from that, I know there's the whole like French labeling thing that sort of came out of the woodwork at some point. So when you bring in foreign supply that might not meet the Canadian language rules for, for labels. And so there were maybe some supply chain issues with that. Um, and I imagine like the toilet paper in early COVID. So right. once the media... Because this was like once, three months ago. That once this... everyone starts talking about it, what do people do? They go there and they fill their cart with everything they can find and hoard it at home. So I would imagine, I see the look on your face. Well, I, I was s- just, no, <laughs> I was just, I was just thinking. How I saw much the, Motrin I, do you have I saw, in your cupboard? <laughs> I saw the other day uh, an Amazon retailer was selling uh, a bottle of ibuprofen for $296 oh, yeah, exactly. a bottle. Uh, yeah, Amazon is the free market, right? So you, yeah, the prices there would be crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I think there's there, again there's multiple dynamics. Hopefully, it will get resolved sooner than later because they are apparently bringing in more international supply now. So we'll see how that actually manifests yeah, itself. The first but thing I would imagine as soon as it hits the shelf, they'll probably just have to keep it behind the counter and say like one per customer. Yeah, in order to stop people from going bananas. Yeah, when I when I first read that uh, Trudeau was had secured a a foreign supply, I thought like, how much is that costing? Because I guarantee it's not just like base, no, you base, want some retail do you? cost <laughs> that, that you're paying for that at this point. Yeah, it blew my yeah. mind a little bit um, that something was not done about this more rapidly. And I'm sure, you know, it seemed an international enough, trade right? and import and export. I, I'm sure it's it's more complicated than, yeah. than people would believe. But when you got, you know, three to four months out is when we started learning about it, yeah. let alone when the government started learning it was about before, it. Way before that. And this is fever medication for, for kids. Yeah. So it's a critically important thing to get on top of. Um, I I just don't know how it's how it's taken this long to resolve. And I read the, uh, the issue with bilingual labeling, which I'm sure does not play as much of a role in it as, as yeah, people think that it, it does. Yeah. Um, and I think it's... Yeah, you know, you you got to be careful with that stuff. You can't just be bringing in medication that a certain segment of the population can't read, because uh, the liability attached to doing something like that, I would assume, is absolutely massive. Anyhow, uh, lots of reasons why there's a medication shortage. Uh, I had also heard that there is a shortage in some antibiotics as well. Is that true? Amoxicillin specifically is is what I've heard. Yeah, like the liquid Any idea formulation. Why that is? I have no idea. Um, but you know, equally concerning. So it's the 
it's the most commonly prescribed antibiotic for kids, you know, ear infections and strep throat and, you know, just usual stuff. Yeah. So again, where are those going to go to emerge? Right. And the problem worsens. Uh, where am I here? What is a truly dangerous temperature for a zero to five year old to reach? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Again, non pediatrician talking. Well, I'm sure you can give a window. Yeah. I, so typically, I work in, in Celsius, just <laughs> FYI. You can't so. do the Fahrenheit conversion. <laughs> Um, I mean, a, a dangerous fever would be north of 39.5 Celsius, typically. So once, and definitely if you're above 40, that's like, that's seizure territory. So be, uh, kids can get febrile seizures. Um, so that definitely needs to be treated. Um, but yeah, 39.5, I think is where I'd start to feel pretty uncomfortable. Okay. You, I think you might've answered this one a little bit. But what can parents do at home to prevent going to the hospital? Uh, an apple a day. <laughs> Probably specific to, uh, you know, viral issues, if there is anything at all that can be done. Um, apart from just slapping a mask on everybody in, in the household. <laughs> So, which was recommended by Dr. Moore. I don't know if you saw that or not. I feel it's like symptomatic. He, I it's feel symptomatic. like he must have made a mistake in that clip. Like he must have misheard the question that the reporter asked because she said, so if I'm at home and I wake up with the sniffles, should I be masking in my house? And he said, yes, I'm sorry, but yes, you should be. Like, who's going to be wearing a mask? I mean, some people, <laughs> some people will be. What? A uh, normal, non-traumatized human being <laughs> okay. is just going like, can you imagine being a three or four year old in your house? You have a runny nose and your parent slaps an N95 on your face and screams at you when you go and take it off. This is, of course, worst case scenario. But you know that the, you know that things like this are happening in people's households right now. Hopefully, yeah, that's a few and far between situation. But I don't know if you remember the uh, this happened in the U.S. I can't remember what state, but uh, a mother and she was a school teacher, a school teacher in the U.S. Her like 12 or 13 year old child tested positive for covid. She made her child go in the trunk of the car and locked her child in the trunk of the car to drive to get a PCR test. Oh, no. <laughs> to, se to separate them during the drive. And uh, clearly, like, you know, people like that probably have something going on long, be <laughs> I would, I would long so. before these issues present yeah, themselves. Yeah. But, uh, I, you know. Well, I, let's I, just briefly chat about the evidence. Sure. Um, so, you know, incredibly enough, there were – there have been multiple trials on on masking for influenza like illnesses, which would include obviously influenza and RSV type situations. And there's even a, a Cochrane review on it from which was updated in 2020. Uh, and the the bottom line is there's actually not solid evidence that masking prevents the transmission of influenza like illnesses even in hospital even in hospital yeah so in in a healthcare setting so there's there's some sort of mixed evidence and it's disappointing right because you'd think logically it should prevent it now like RSV it's it's not an aerosolized thing it's not an airborne disease most of it is actually from direct contact with droplets 
so that actually is mostly on your hands. And then you get stuff on your hands from people, you know, people cough and they sneeze and droplets get places and then you touch it. Uh, you know, it's called they rest on what they call fomites, which is, you know, door handles and surfaces. You touch that, you touch your face, boom, you've been inoculated. There you go. So the thing that actually shows evidence for reduced transmission is hand washing, not masking. And, you know, you can get into in a, in a lab setting uh, if like if you put on a mask and I sneeze directly in your face, uh, that mask would definitely prevent the majority of those particles getting into your mouth and nose. Absolutely, for sure. Uh, but that's not what's happening, right? So human behavior takes over. So outside of that direct controlled experimental setting, people go about their day. You touch all sorts of things all day long. You touch your face unknowingly multiple times a day. You have to take your mask off to eat and drink so it like it's essentially impossible to avoid these things out there if if you're out and about in the community i think the reason why these infections were obliterated during the lockdowns was because literally people weren't going to school people weren't traveling international air travel was shut down like the mobility of, of human beings was drastically reduced and because of that i think the transmission of those types of illnesses was significantly reduced it it was unlikely that the masks were actually helping so all of this conversation in the media about should we have a mandate or should it just be a recommendation honestly to me is completely irrelevant because the evidence doesn't actually support the fact that it is ultimately efficacious so if we want to be a truly evidence-based decision-making entity in healthcare, then we look to what we have and you go, okay. Now, that being said, if you're high risk and you have immunosuppression, you have other comorbidities, uh, you're an older you know, person, then by all means, it's a low-cost, innocuous intervention to put on a mask. For sure. If it makes you feel more comfortable and you think it's doing something for you, great go for it. I wear a mask all day long in the hospital when I'm seeing patients because it's mandated in the hospital. I don't see that as an affront to my human rights. I think it's fine. I'm in a healthcare setting. We need to set a good example. And we, you know, we gown and we glove and we hand wash and we do all of the other things that are necessary in that environment to protect ourselves and to protect our patients. You know, despite that, our patients still get COVID while they're in the hospital. More so than anywhere else. From other patients. <laughs> right. Aside <laughs> right. from, so aside in, from you know, the long-term care Incredibly, you know, all, even with all of these precautions, the thing still spreads. So just, you know, talking about masking as a single intervention, as if it's, as if this is the thing that's going to reduce the numbers in hospital, uh, you know, regardless of all the other problems in healthcare that we've already talked about is, is silly. Good. Enjoy your answer. Do you, are you familiar with Monica Gandhi and from UCSF? And, yes. And her work. Yeah. i She's the person that uh, that I was following about uh, her take on masking uh, and her pushback against uh, communal masking and what that was actually going to do uh, and uh, not only some of the older hospital-based studies, but also some of the newer, better uh, studies related to COVID-19. Uh, and she did a really good thread on like why, you know, 
one-way masking is going to be as effective as two-way masking and why therefore mandates are going to cause more harm uh, than good. So I was going to reference some of her stuff, but I think that's uh, a bit moot now that, uh, that you've said basically the same thing. So we will move on here. Uh, where are we? Oh, you'll like this one. <laughs> are fevers not a mechanism for combating infection? And is there a downside to liberal fever medication, uh, to liberal fever medication acutely or chronically? Not acutely, like talk the obvious toxicity of too much of a fever medication for a kid too quickly. Um, but, you know, trying to uh, trying to get a fever down over the course of days uh, or, you know, over a stage of life, maybe one, two, three, four years of a child's life, always going to fever medication as soon as there's a slight elevation rather than waiting until it gets to a certain point. Do you see a downside of 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 over medicating in that sense? Well, I, would, I don't recommend over-medicating, but that I mean, depends on what your definition of over-medicating is. Right. But uh, a fever is not therapeutic. Like you, your body having a fever is it's a result of the infection. And yes, a, it's it's a normal response to infection. But the fever itself is not doing anything beneficial to help you fight that infection. And it just makes you feel like garbage. <laughs> so... Uh, and it's potentially dangerous for your for a child to not have a, a fever treated because of the potential for for seizures, which can lead to neurological damage. So yeah, I, I, there's no no reason to not treat a fever. Is that true? Is the point is the response of the fever not an attempt to destroy bacteria or virus or other pathogen that? Uh, that is inside of a human body. I don't know, if Darwin was here, maybe he could <laughs> uh, he could let us know the evolutionary basis uh, for for why to do it. I mean, y you can theorize first of all, like biology has no intent, right? It just it responds. It, it you're a physical chemical entity, and it's a chain of reactions that respond to give you a manifestation of something. So you could say, well, by increasing your core body temperature by one and a half to two degrees i am making it a hostile environment for the invading species that is inside of me uh, which will reduce its replication or make its you know protein folding more difficult uh i don't know like i'm sure there's some mechanistic argument that could be made for for that but whatever it is your body's not very good at it. That's that's certainly true. I agree with you there. And, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm pro-fever medication. Yeah. <laughs> I, try, sure. I try not to use it too much, but uh, I would rather have my child uh, not be in pain and, more importantly, bothering me or waking me up in the middle of the night. <laughs> more uh, importantly. Because <laughs> the, the ramifications of me having two hours of sleep is going to be worse on my child's health. Uh, than the uh, the fever yeah. itself. Uh, no, Tommy, I, angry. I was always yeah. <laughs> I was always under the impression that that was uh, that that was I, I don't want to say settled science for obvious reasons, but I thought science that was I thought settled, that was a strong yeah. hypothesis that the fever was an attempt to make the environment uninhabitable by uh, foreign invaders. Again, there, there's no intent in biology. This is a very unholistic but, <laughs> approach to the human body you're taking here. 
I think yes. we, we can move on from yes. this one. Um, Why does your heart beat? <laughs> because it wants you to stay alive. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I, <laughs> or is it just that there's electrical circuits that keep going? Like, no. I, yeah. Listen to this. You're <laughs> barely human. Uh, how bad is the nursing shortage? We talked about this a little bit, but I read uh, a study, article slash study, just today that says, uh, based off of, uh, survey evidence uh, around 20% of current MDs plan to retire within the next five years. MDs or, or nurses? MDs. MDs. Yeah, which it, just, it was just, I put it in the notes there because okay. uh, um, you know, I wonder. I don't know. They, they didn't survey me. <laughs> um, I don't, yeah. So things like, I never know what, you, you got to look into the weeds there. Like, who did they survey? Did they, you know, we only surveyed 60 plus year old physicians <laughs> uh, in rural practices. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure who that would be. Uh, 20% sounds pretty aggressive to me. Uh, for the number of people intending to retire because you know how many I'm sure you, you you know of more than one example of a physician practicing till they're 80 yeah <laughs> so well beyond yeah well beyond their best before date I believe there's um, a there's a certain local uh, surgeon who uh, went well beyond his years <laughs> and essentially yeah, fled the so, country to go practice surgery somewhere else yeah yeah exactly <laughs> um so I, I don't have numbers. I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure that there are numbers that are out there right now, but uh, the shortage is bad. It's it's definitely bad. You gave the OECD numbers. We already have you know not enough physicians per capita as it is. Yeah. Medical school enrollments have gone up uh, across all of our medical schools. They're creating a new medical school. So you know, 10 years from now, we will have more physicians, but there's also population growth going on at the same time. Uh, so I don't know ultimately where that shakes out for per capita. Uh, and on the nurses side, uh, I think it's I think it's similar. Um, I, I don't know if all of their class sizes have have increased for training uh, or if they're having trouble recruiting. Uh, honestly, don't know. But the, these are the things that are really important from a health human resource standpoint that we need to be looking at and going. We need to train people to do this because, you know, th this honestly is the business of the ministry, like 40 percent or more of provincial spending goes to healthcare, so we need to have the people there to run it certainly uh two more questions last one's a doozy you're gonna like it have you seen a fundamental change in the way physicians under 50 practice medicine uh how has that changed and why do you think that's changing uh i'm a physician under 50 and <laughs> uh I, yeah it's, I think it's difficult to make a broad strokes assertion for difference in practice style. Um, I bet it's not. The, <laughs> <laughs> the training environment has changed substantially in the last 20 years for sure. Um, so it's, it's become... It, like, it's still arduous, but it's become less arduous for sure. Like the stories that your 50 plus year old physicians will tell you about how they trained and the hours that they worked and the experiences that they had and the unreasonable expectations and amount of responsibility given too early uh, would sort of blow your mind. Um, so it's probably for the good of us all that it's no longer like that. Um, but we are seeing a push now towards coddling 
and that may sound controversial i don't think it is there's necessarily been a, a strong emphasis on uh well-being in medicine because of the burnout epidemic our other epidemic um you know i personally am part of the well-being uh, leadership at, at western um, in the process of creating a curriculum for our our trainees uh, but it, there's a conflation of well-being meaning not working a lot and extra time off and not having to do a lot of the other things that physicians often have to do there's a conflation with that to preparing yourself to go I chose this career, I take full responsibility for it, I accept what's coming, and I'm gonna do the best that I can, and I'm gonna arm myself with tools to be self-reflective and understand what's happening and know when I need to take a break uh, and help to influence creating institutions that actually work for the people in them. So it's it's a very different approach. You know, We need the latter, we don't need the former. Yes, we shouldn't overwork people, but it's not about, you know, after extra afternoons off because wellness. Yeah, it doesn't bode well for uh, yeah. for healthcare. So o- overall, you know, I, I think that we probably need we need more people to do the same amount of work that previous generations would have done. But that's probably okay, because also, you know, just the human experience of life it's not all about working. There's other aspects to life that we want to experience and be able to enjoy. And your career should enhance your experience of life, not be soul sucking and detract from it. Cause then you're no good for anybody. Yeah, that's true. But I think the more fundamental issue there is having a line of work that is not fulfilling to you in a yeah. serious we way. We also have to be uh, leery of making it too much about the individual, right? Because right. from a societal standpoint, we invest a ton in training people to become physicians and other healthcare workers. And there's an expectation that there's a return on that investment by putting in hours and seeing people and doing the work. And that is the commitment that you make when you sign up to do this thing. Yeah, I'll be honest. I was very bothered by nurses and physicians and support workers complaining, primarily nurses and physicians, less so support workers. Um, but complaining about the trenches they had to climb into during the pandemic. Reason being that I would think like this is your like this is your time to do your job. Like if you're signing up for this type of work and now is the time where you're needed more than ever in probably hopefully a once in a lifetime situation that you're going to face in your career. Like this is what you're there for, is for this grind, <laughs> for serving the community in this way. To me, it's like someone signing up for the military, training for 10 years, and then there's a conflict and they go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I don't like it. And then just yeah. complaining about it. Like it, it, it rubbed me the wrong way. It was like that you should be, I get that it's hard and it's grinding, and, but you should it, be in inspired the one to be taking care of people yeah, I think right you, now. I think you've, you've definitely got an argument to make when you see pictures of healthcare workers donning garbage bags as PPE because they were woefully undersupplied and 
the they were failed by the system. Certainly, and to, that's an, you know, they that's were under underprepared and not given enough resources. So that's one situation because then you're taking on unnecessary personal risk, which should not be the circumstance. Uh, but just having to you know go to work more and shift and you know just do things differently and or take on a leadership role that you didn't have to before that's all part of it that's that's not to be complained about okay you ready for the last one bring this thing home let's do it why haven't hospitals hired back staff who were fired per vaccination policies hmm. is that a fact that hospitals haven't hired back people that they fired for not being vaccinated. Dude, I, be, I believe it is. Do we know that? I don't. I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure that uh, that they at least have not been invited back into their <laughs> positions. Um, yeah. So I, I suppose implicit in that question is if we have such a bad staff shorting shortage, and there are people out there who have the skills and the training already, who were dismissed during the pandemic. Who now probably have had COVID and are, you know, have natural immunity and are no better or worse off than any of the rest of us uh, based on Im immune status. Uh, should we bring them back to help out with with the cause? Um, it's an interesting question. I have no idea if they've been reached out to or not. Uh, I also don't have a good sense for how many people that is. So I know at LHSC, it was very, very few people. Like it was less than a percent of the workforce that would have been caught up in in that. So they actually didn't have to release a lot of people and very, very f and e like a fraction of the people who actually had to be fired uh, were clinical staff. So I don't think you're talking about a huge group of people. Uh, I'm obviously, all, all hands on deck would would be required. Um, so I, I again, you know, similar to all all through the pandemic, if immunity is is immunity, if we're actually looking at it that way and people can put their differences aside and we can commit to a cause and the same mission, then uh, I believe in forgiveness <laughs> and and moving on as if there's anything to forgive. Well, I was just going to uh, say, I don't like know if forgiveness you know, is the right somebody word. Somebody made a decision based on their personal values and, and they stuck to it and they paid a price for it. Uh, if they're willing to, to come back and, and work and they're needed, then, I mean, why not? Yeah. And I guess that's kind of the question this person's asking. I don't think... Uh, I'm not in charge of hiring or firing. <laughs> yeah, so, I don't think know. the return to work of people who are let go uh, based on vaccination status is going to be the influx of uh, labor required to solve the current issues. Uh, no, I we think need way I, more than that. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> yeah. I think that's overstated. Um, yeah. But uh, when when all this first started happening, right from the very beginning. I was against uh, general vaccine mandates, mask mandates, uh, closures, small businesses being forced closed, in my case, for obvious uh, selfish biased reasons. Um, and I've always tried to make the case for personal choice, trying to educate the public the best you can and then allowing them to make their own decision with the best information they can possibly get. If for no other reason not to erode that relationship between uh, government and the public, public health and the public, institutions and the public, and I think we've seen uh, how destructive 
that's been with the approach that we took. But in the initial, I relented when it came to hospitals and those care settings because, you know, it was my my perspective that this is a publicly funded health institution. And this is a space where if they say you have to take this medication for this reason in order to work in this environment, I mean, that's one of the places where you can make a better case for where something like that is going to stand. But as soon as become as soon as it became very obvious that vaccination was not preventing infection and spread in a reasonable way, I think those people should have been rehired and offered their jobs back immediately, uh, because to not do that is to punish them for the decision that they made for reasons that have nothing to do with what your logic was for firing them in the first place. You're basically saying you disobeyed what we asked you to do. You cannot come back rather than just saying, hey, this assumption we made is now incorrect or less correct, and therefore you should be reinstated under those circumstances. Uh, and any institution that has not, you know, has basically doubled down on that policy, I think, uh, I shouldn't say I think, you know, I think that re reflects quite poorly on people who lead those institutions, because to me, it's a childish thing to do. That's just my opinion. I don't. I don't expect you to. Uh, to to you're to wrong. Up. I don't expect <laughs> you to follow up on that. Um, oh, there's a. I thought that was the last one. There's one more. Oh, a bonus question. As if this wasn't planned. No, and this one's even better. This wasn't planned. I just put a big giant note <laughs> in there that I don't require anymore, and I put it in the wrong spot. Do you agree? <laughs> You're gonna hate this question. Too. Do you no do you agree Great. with the yeah. ongoing encouragement slash pressure to vaccinate children against COVID nineteen? Uh, with what we know today about risked children, uh, as well as the benefit of vaccination in that population. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you you are free to not answer any question that you do not want to answer Again, if you don't not, think it's worth yeah, I'm, you I'm not speaking a, up I'm on not it. a pediatric specialist. It's hard for me to come. Like on a, I I don't know the numbers offhand for the number needed to treat for for vaccinating and and what the absolute risk is uh from harm from the vaccine itself in that population. Um much more familiar with the the adult population. So um yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I what I'll just say is personally, so my I have three kids. My two older kids are eight and six, and both of them we got their primary series done, so the the two vaccines, and they were fine, and they had not had COVID at that point. My wife was vaccinated while she was pregnant with our infant daughter, and so we felt good about that, and that immunity should last you know basically the first six to nine months of her life so she's beyond that now but then we had COVID in our household in the summer and so and the including the baby had COVID at that time so I mean even though you can get a vaccine for the six to or six month plus population now we are not going to get her vaccinated. She's been exposed to the vaccine already in utero and she's had the virus already. So I, I really see no urgency to, to get her vaccinated at this point. That's just our personal family decision. Uh, and similarly, because our two older kids were exposed in the summer, 
uh, you know, I, I think the NASI recommendation of waiting at least six months since your last booster or infection is, is reasonable until you think about getting another booster and then make a decision at that time. Wonderful. I was going to follow up with another question, but I think I'll just let you off the hook there. Oh, thank uh, God. Is there anything else <laughs> that you want to, uh, you want to tie this up with? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> stay stay engaged uh it is important to to know what's going on oh and, i have a question oh no and we'll wrap up with this no this will be uh <laughs> this will be outside of the thread of the last couple okay so what is this like what is the solution to this healthcare issue like in your mind like writ large yeah because there's a there's an issue of we, you know, there's lots of issues, but one of the main ones is people want an efficient healthcare system, mm. meaning you're not wasting money, but you're also not putting people at risk by not spending enough money to create enough resources uh, and create enough, enough capacity for the rise and fall of need within the hospital. Uh, we know that, that money is spent quite inefficiently uh, within the country in general for what we're getting in return. Uh, we have all of these staffing issues that are growing, uh, which will probably only worsen with, with early retirement if we're not filling those positions properly. Like to you, there's 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 gotta be there's multiple innovative things. solutions that perhaps you're not going to get uh, through government means, or at least current government means. Let's pretend there's no yeah. restrictions here. What do you see as a path to I'm glad creating was, stronger institutions? I'm glad this was just a quick question <laughs> at the end. Um, you know, you, I think you have to think about it in short, like near-term solutions and long-term solutions. The long-term solutions are way more important. Uh, the near-term solutions are like we need more people to do the work to meet the demand that currently exists. So that includes internationally trained physicians who are trained in programs that we can trust to reduce the barriers to getting them into the country and, and practicing, you know, as physicians or nurses or whatever their skill set is. Uh, it's hugely difficult to get somebody uh, who's not Canadian into Canada to practice in the costs medical field. grand a year to go to medical school as an international student. Yeah, it, but be, for people who are already trained and who think they might want to come to Canada uh, to to live, then we need to make it less obstructive for them to do so. So that will help. Um, across the board, we've seen calls to eliminate the the silly you know differences in licensures by province or territory. That's ridiculous, right? That like is, we we all I've meet the same standards. That. Like there's no reason why someone can't. You know, go from Ontario to Alberta, BC, Northwest Territories, and and just practice medicine without again having to jump through a bunch of hurdles. To you're like, where where's my certificate that I you know got 15 years ago? Yeah. It's it's ridiculous. That would help. <clears throat> uh, I think looking at uh, thinking about the surgical backlogs, um, there are good examples of efficient. Uh, surgical centers that already exist uh, that can peel a lot of people off the waiting list for the less complex, uh, easily done surgeries. And then I know that always raises the ire of the whole privatization thing, um, but that's another conversation for another time. But there are places that already exist that can take up the slack and do some of that work. Um, 
in terms of the wait list for specialists, you mentioned that we're like the worst for specialist wait times. That could be easily cleaned up by centralizing some of the referral processes. Like it's silly that even within my institution, like we just refer to the people that we know. Uh, it's not like I have a patient with a general surgery problem. Why can't I just refer them to general surgery and the general surgery people get together and figure out who gets that referral based on the shortest wait time and, and you know, combination of that plus skill set so that the patient gets the best, most, you know, best person for the job in the shortest amount of time. Like simple things like that would actually probably make a, a, a difference. Um, so those are the quick things. And then just getting more people through the pipeline for the next five or 10 years in medical schools and nursing schools and higher, like paying PSWs a reasonable amount of money to perform home care, for example. Um, we need more long-term care spaces. We actually need more hospital beds. So there needs to be a capital infrastructure investment done. Uh, like it's crazy that in a city like London with 450,000 people or whatever it is now, we have no community hospital. Like it's, it's ridiculous. We have a quaternary academic teaching center and an ambulatory, you know, effectively surgical center and outpatient chronic disease management hospital. That's what we have. We don't have regular community hospital wards, which is silly. So all of those solutions can, you know, probably on the five-year time horizon are something to, to think about. In the long term, we need to stop waiting for people to get too sick in their 50s plus before we treat them for things. We need to have a massive investment in preventative health care, which is why I'm so passionate about cardiometa cardiometabolic health, seeing people in their 30s and 40s before they actually get the manifestation of chronic diseases and then end up costing us a ton of money in the healthcare system when we could have stopped those things from happening in the first place. Right. And that's, you know, that happens in doctor's offices, but it also happens in grocery stores and gyms and schools and all sorts of other things that requires public policy. Gotcha. Yeah, the, uh, the question of, of privatization uh, will be a part of our next conversation when we talk about healthcare more broadly. Um, yeah, I think that about wraps it up. Love it. The content provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical advice and is not intended to be a substitute for independent professional medical judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I mean, clearly not when I'm speaking. I'm not a doctor, but that goes for the real doctor, Dr. Appleton as well. You should always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions or concerns you may have regarding your health. You should never disregard or delay seeking medical advice relating to treatment or standard of care because of information contained in or transmitted, huh? transmitted? Yes, information contained in or transmitted in this podcast. <laughs>